from Kaliale Kelowna, and this is Nashville. Margot Price is a guiding light for young musicians in Nashville. For those who move here with their instrument and a handful of songs, willing to work in whatever capacity needed to pay the bills, all while holding on to that vision of what kind of musician they want to be, they need look no further than the path of this singer-songwriter from Aledo, Illinois. Part of what makes her stand out to audiences is her ability to express the unvarnished realities of life through honest lyricism and the clarity of her voice. And now, she's got a new album out called Strays. Later this hour, we'll bring you a rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with Nashville's own Margot Price. But first, over the weekend, Governor Bill Lee was sworn in for his second term in a ceremony at War Memorial Plaza. In his inaugural speech, the Franklin-born Republican pledged to address the state's ailing roads, energy grid, and problems at the Department of Children's Services. Our reporter Alexis Marshall was there, and she joins us now. Alexis, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you, Khalil? Doing well, doing well. Okay, so set the scene for us at the inauguration. Okay, so it's cold, it's chilly, uh, it's really sunny, and a, bl a band is playing. Uh, the National Guard band is playing. There is a who's who of Tennessee politics. You've got Tennessee's senators, a ton of state lawmakers, um, some former governors up on the risers with Governor Bill Lee as he's about to get sworn into office. Hmm. Okay, so it sounds like a festive environment. Yeah, it was pretty festive. A lot of people, you know, chit-chatting, shaking hands in the audience and uh, just getting ready to, to see what ends up being, you know, a pretty historic event. So what were the key takeaways from Lee's inaugural address? I think the main takeaways were his goals that he laid out for this next term. We need a transportation strategy and an energy strategy designed for one of the fastest growing states in America. We need to enhance our efforts to preserve our natural resources and to protect the environment of what I believe is the most beautiful place in the world. We need to protect children in our custody and across this state with a better foster care and a better adoption process. Okay, sounds like we need some strategies according to the governor. Those are some issues that tend to have pretty broad support, especially resolving issues in the state's Department of Children's Services. What else did he say? Uh, so what was really interesting was this parable that he used throughout his speech. Um, and it's the parable of the talents, essentially saying that folks don't need to hoard resources, but instead be good stewards of them so that they multiply. And he was saying that Tennessee has been a good steward of its resources and that uh, the fiscal responsibility has led to bringing a lot of economic growth to the state and also keeping taxes low. Um but it was an interesting parable to choose considering that Tennessee has had multi-billion dollar surpluses for a few years now. Mm -hmm. And that money does get allocated eventually. Um, and sometimes it's for things like investing into education or sometimes for big um, one-time infrastructure projects. Uh, but also sometimes it goes into the rainy day fund, which makes it pretty hard to tr uh, touch unless we are in like severe economic trouble. We didn't touch the rainy day fund for pretty much all of COVID. And I think mm -hmm. the last time that we did was back after the recession, like the 2008-2009 recession. Um, 
And so defenders of that strategy say that it's smart to plan conservatively so that if we do hit economic bumps in the road, um, we don't have to make immediate cuts. But others say that the state should be a little less stingy and uh do ongoing budgeting to provide more direct services, social spending on things like Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of politicians in their final terms, they're looking more at their legacy. So what should we look for as Lee enters these next four years? Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing him build that legacy. We're, we're hearing him talk about the environment after four years of largely ignoring that issue. Um, and we're also hearing him talk about more civility in politics. And he really avoided culture war issues uh, during this speech, even though that's something that his party and even he himself have promoted um, in his first four years in office. Um, you know, in his first term, he signed one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country, limited what school children can learn about racism, sexism and privilege in the classroom, and also enacted policies, uh, policing bathrooms and sports teams for trans people. So it'll mm. be interesting what to see to see what he does next in this next four years. And just last week, his administration announced that nonprofits working on HIV testing and prevention would no longer receive federal grant money. Now, these organizations were pretty stunned since progress on HIV has sort of stalled out in recent years, especially in the South. And Memphis is even a hot spot for new HIV cases nationally. WPLN's Blake Farmer is here to get us up to speed on the governor's involvement. Welcome, Blake. Glad to be here. Thanks for being here. So do we know yet why Tennessee would turn down millions of dollars from the federal government to help end the HIV epidemic? Well, you know, we we have learned more each day, um, and it doesn't, for what it's worth, seem all, all that connected to uh, this this second term that the governor's starting. Though the governor is very involved, but the most recent revelations that you know this really had a lot more to do with Planned Parenthood than than we first understood. The Associated Press obtained a letter um, and, and published a story on it Friday that showed. You know, several months ago, the state was trying to find a way to stop sending money to Planned Parenthood, basically citing the political climate in the state. And, you know, while the organization can no longer offer abortions in Tennessee, as it's certainly been known for, um, it still works on reproductive health. And one of those issues is HIV prevention. You know, it had a, a condom distribution program funded by this grant that passed through the state from the CDC. It also offered HIV testing, but it seems rather than just pulling the money from Planned Parenthood specifically, the state basically pulled the money from many of these programs, which include um, Nashville Cares here in Nashville, also Mm -hmm. Neighborhood Health, uh, uh, some uh, nonprofit clinics based here. So this is just about sticking it to Planned Parenthood? You know, I mean, there seems to be more here than that. You know, the governor's office said to us that, you know, this decision is part of a broader priority. Frankly, it kind of falls in line with some of what we heard from him um, during the inauguration, but making Tennessee more independent uh, and independent of the federal government in particular. And Governor Lee said Friday that he thinks the state can do better funding HIV prevention without what he called strings attached to the federal money. His office um, also added that he wants to focus on new groups, which this is where things get tricky. And he named them. They include first responders, mothers and children, and victims of human trafficking. Hmm. Now, 
are those groups? Are those groups that are high at risk of HIV? Well, uh, you know, these are not the the highest risk groups, at least in in the way that that uh, public health leaders see it. Um, the most at risk in Tennessee in recent years, uh, when you look at the numbers, have been basically young black men and men who have sex with men. And this is a demographic that has been marginalized historically. And in some ways, um, you know, some uh, some ways in Tennessee and many states, almost out in the open. I mean, you have conservative politicians who still try to undermine same-sex relationships in all kinds of ways. Um, I asked Dr. Ima Ahunkai, who's been here on the show, an HIV researcher and Mm -hmm. clinician at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, uh, about the governor's statement about prioritizing first responders, mothers and children, uh, over folks who are more at risk. And, And here's what she said. Everyone who needs care deserves care. You know, that's my personal, very strong guiding light. But, you know, if, if we just take take a, a community perspective, if we don't care for the people in our community, this disease gets further out of control for the whole community. That has an impact on everyone, um, not just individuals who people might find morally objectionable. So it's really difficult to hear all of this unfolding. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Ahunkai is saying that, you know, even if you have problems with, let's say, passing out condoms uh, or condoning same-sex relationships, you know, even if it's just a selfish decision in your own self-interest, it is good for your community if there is less HIV going around. Mm. Now, last question for now. This federal money for HIV testing runs out at the end of May. So what happens then? Well, That does remain to be seen, but it seems the governor is saying that the state will put money into HIV prevention, maybe even the same amount of money, which is not a gigantic sum. We don't have a final tally, but we're talking in the neighborhood of seven, eight million dollars. But it also sounds as though Tennessee is going to have some new ideas about how this money gets spent and likely what groups this money goes to for the work that they're doing. And specifically, um, these are groups that are a little more, you know, politically popular among Republicans like first responders, mothers and children. Blake Farmer is the senior healthcare reporter, and Alexis Marshall is the education reporter here at WPLN. Blake and Alexis, thank you so much for being here, and thank you for your reporting. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with the Nashville country musician Margot Price. She talks about her life and her new book, Maybe We'll Make It. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Margot Price's debut solo album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, was hailed by critics as one of the best country albums of 2016. Since then, she's released three more albums, All American Made, and That's How Rumors Get Started. And her latest album, Strays, was just released this month. In honor of the new release, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with the country musician, whose unfiltered storytelling and her willingness to tell the truth about life has endeared her to fans all over the world. In addition to songwriter, musician, mother, wife, and industry leader, Margot has added author to her list of titles. Her memoir, Maybe We'll Make It, tells the stories of her life. 
From growing up in a small town in Illinois to reaching international acclaim, Margot Price, welcome to This Is Nashville. Hey, thank you for having me. Really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. Okay, let's start with your book. I heard you started writing it as a therapy exercise. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I did. I, you know, I felt like I had kind of just got my career off the ground. And as soon as I had put out my second album, I found myself uh, pregnant with my daughter, Ramona, and mm. had a lot of time at home again. And so while I was, um, while I was giving life to her, I just kind of started writing uh, this, this memoir. And the idea behind it was not really to put it out quite this soon. It just ended up that I wrote so much and somebody read the manuscript and everything kind of happened really quickly after that. Well, it took four and a half years of writing, but, yeah. but quickly after that. All right, so let's go in the past a little bit. You're from small town, Illinois, Alito to be exact. You know, tell me a little bit about your hometown. What was it like growing up there? It was a really rural area. Um, you know, it's it was a farming community and a lot of the farms uh, in the town were kind of going under in the mid 80s. There was um, not that much to do there. And so it was easy to find trouble. Um, you know, I, I talk about kind of some of the problems that plagued the Midwest. Um, mm. A lot of people that struggled with alcohol use and, um, and you know, other harder drugs. Um, but it was, it was like just your classic small town um, in middle America. And yeah, it, it was almost too small, I would have to say. <laughs> almost too small. What do you mean? Well, you know, as... As businesses were kind of failing and, and, you know, farms were going under, a lot of people were just moving away. And so um, even from, you know, my parents both graduated from there and it it just is continuing to get smaller and smaller. Um, I still go back and, and visit a little bit, but um, it's just not a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Speaking of that, you know, I understand your family ran into hard times when you were very young. How did that impact your parents? I saw the loss of, uh, of the family farm, you know, affect everyone in my family, uh, my, my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. And it really, it touched everybody. And, um, it, it was hard to, it was hard to witness that loss and, and just see it kind of manifest itself in, in ways that, I think, you know, brought a lot of shame, uh, just thoughts of failure um, mm. to, my, to my family. But, you know, they were all incredibly hard workers and they, they all found work and, and did what they had to do to, to keep going. Now, as, as you grew older and you kind of look back at that time, what did you come to learn about your parents, your grandparents, your family, and, you know, who they were in accordance to how they responded to this difficult time? I mean, incredible resilience. I think um, they, you know, they all did what they had to do. They pushed ahead and um, and just did whatever it took to to keep going. And and I I love them all so much. And I I feel really lucky. You know, my parents. My dad went and he found work at a uh, 
a prison. And I know that was not the most enjoyable work to do, but, um, and my mother, she went back to school. She was a school teacher for, you know, until she retired and she was just such a bright light in the community to, to everyone that she met. Um, so I feel like, you know, that, that Midwest work ethic that, mm-hmm. that runs through my bones. You know, your debut album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, it chronicled your life up to that point. You know, talk to me about the approach you took. Like, did you take it to make it sort of a benchmark? Did you come out there with that album, specifically with the stories you were telling? Did you do that to tell the audience, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is what I'm about? Yeah, I think I really wanted to be transparent. Um, When I started writing that album, I was just coming from a much different place than I had prior. And I felt like we had every all of our eggs in one basket. My husband had sold the car to make the album. I had pawned my wedding ring. Mm. We were in a really low place with our career, with our marriage. Um, you know, we had we had lost a child to a heart defect, and um, he died after a surgery at Vanderbilt Hospital. And we just went into a really really dark time. Um, so that album was a culmination of of all those things, of all the failure of, uh, just not fitting in and just trying to, uh, to make one kind of one last ditch effort of recording, Hmm. recording an album that like, that might get us out of, you know, working those day to day hard jobs that were, I mean, we were just living below the poverty line. And I, I still know so many great songwriters in this town that just deserve more than they have, you know? Wow. You, you have faced all of this incredible hardship, the loss of a child. You and your husband are making it, try to make it however you can. You throw everything to the wall for this record. What was that experience like? At the same time, you were able just to be so open and raw and honest, like you said. What's that experience like being able to do that for this first project where you don't know how it's going to fall upon people's ears? I think... Just like writing the book, making the album, making all the art that we have made, it's just, it's a way to process feelings. It's a way to process trauma. And it's how you respond to the hardships in your life that, um, that build character. Um, I think that you can't have joy without sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so it was, you know, I was just looking at the world through different eyes when I made that record and, I kind of go, it's like there's the before time, you know, before I lost my son and then there's after. It was just nothing was was ever the same for me after that. But I've I still feel so lucky that I that I get to play music for a living. And I think, you know, had Third Man not picked up my album at all, I think I would still be making music because it just it brings me joy. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to a track of some of your music, a track from Midwest Farmer's Daughter, which won the American Music Prize for Best Debut Album. This is Hurtin' on the Bottle.
You're never too old to learn how to crawl. That's like accepting humility. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that line a lot. How would you describe your sound on this album? Um, yeah, this this album was me really falling in love with, being in love with classic country music. Um, and yeah, it was, it really was what I was connecting with because it's, it's what we were living at that time. I mean, it's, this is a drinking song, but it's definitely, um, you know, it's a sad drinking song mm -hmm. if you listen to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's in a major key, so it comes off as like a happy party song, but, um, I'm I'm hinting to what I was still struggling at all over that first album. Yeah, as with anybody who experienced in drinking to kind of mask or assuage certain moods, yeah, you feel up and it's a blast when you're doing it, but when you get to that realization, it's a sad place. Yeah, it is. It's fun till it's not. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour with singer-songwriter Margot Price about her early years in Nashville, which she details in her new book, Maybe We'll Make It. So you moved to Nashville in 2003. Take us back to that time. What was it like to be here as a newcomer who dreamed of making music? Man, it was so exciting. It was... It was absolutely thrilling to move to a new place. I mean, I had, I had not experienced, you know, a new city ever. Um, and the club scene, the songwriter scene, it was just, it was a lot different than I thought it was going to be. There were just so many different types of music being played and going on here. I mean, of course, like, you know, there was like what was on the radio and there was like Nashville Star and stuff that kind of I wasn't as drawn to but once I got here and I started going out to these like writers nights and um and meeting people and seeing bands I was I was hooked on this city mm -hmm. I really was you know in the book you talk about working a lot of odd jobs to make it by and make ends meet and you were just telling us a little while earlier about you know the struggles that it was for you and your husband what was what were things like back then how many different kind of odd jobs did you have Oh, I was uh, I was doing a little bit of everything. I I think my first waitressing job was at a TGI Fridays in Antioch. Nice. I worked at the mall there in Antioch as well, doing retail. I sold men's suits. I did interior and exterior painting, tiling. I did. I uh, I taught dance lessons. I was the director of the Green Hills YMCA. I was teaching dance and gymnastics and stuff there. I I worked a million jobs. I, I bartended down on Broadway at Layla's. Um, it was, yeah, we went through the gamut of, of all those things. So let's move on to another clip that you have. It's from Midwest Farmer's Daughter. This is called Hands of Time, which won the Song of the Year at the American Music Honors and Awards International Song of the Year, UK American Awards. Let's take a listen.
I was actually listening to this as I drove into work this morning. And I was thinking, you know, you're, you realize that you can't change the past, but this deep, deep desire to want to do that, not only for yourself, but for your parents that you just, just you know, described and told us what they were going through. Talk to me about that, that desire. I think everybody just wants, a, wants the same thing. You know, we all just want security and, and happiness and, and safety for the people we love. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, to make something of myself and I, and I did, you know, want to have something to show for my life's work. And I really felt, you know, when I wrote that song, I felt like everything was failing, but that was a song that I wasn't writing for anybody else. I was writing that song for me. And, um, it was a big moment of clarity to, to be able to do that. That was really when I kind of started my, my true journey of, uh, of just writing my truth. Mm. In, in your new book, Maybe We'll Make It, you talk about navigating rejection and dealing with that. There was one incident with a label back in 2015, and you've got an excerpt you'd want to share from, with us from that book. Is there any context you'd like to share before getting into and reading that passage? Um, yeah, this, this was just like the year of rejection that we had, uh, being turned down by every label, um, after we'd made Midwest Farmer's Daughter. And so I guess I just want to say to anybody out there listening, um, it's just a really tough business to be in and just keep making your art, keep pushing forward. Um, yeah, this is, this is, a. Uh, this is a little piece for maybe we'll make it. We kept chasing the illusion of good news. We were added last minute to a new festival called Wildwood Revival that my friend Libby Rose curated. The lineup was hip, and although we had to drive through the night from Pennsylvania to be there to play at two in the afternoon, we were thrilled at the prospect of a proper show. Most important of all, the festival was in Georgia and the president of the label that had contacted us was going to come and see us play. The band and I squeezed into the Explorer and hightailed it from Pennsylvania down to Arnoldsville, Georgia through the night. Jeremy and I took turns behind the wheel for a 12-hour drive. It was brutal. We burned rubber to get there, and when we arrived, everyone was exhausted, sore, and cracked out. I was worried about whether I would be able to remember the words of my songs but I was determined to stay focused and give a memorable performance. After all, it could be our big break. We loaded in, changed into our show clothes, and tuned up. There wasn't much time before we took the stage, but somehow we pulled it together and put on a great show. The crowd was deeply engaged. We were given a round of applause to play an encore. When we got off the stage, everyone was on cloud nine. I set out to find the mysterious president of the label, who was no doubt watching out there, and I hoped he was blown away. But no one had seen him. It wasn't that big of a place, and there was only one stage, so there was no way he missed us. I found out a few hours later that the president never showed. When I asked if he was still interested and wanted to come see us at another show, a representative from the label replied, Actually, we're sad to say we have to pass on Margot." We like the album, 
but we already have two girls on our label and we just can't sign anymore. The news hit me like a ton of bricks. I had no idea what my being a girl had to do with it. That specific rejection stuck with me for a long time because it wasn't personal. It was sexist. I wondered how many other talented women out there weren't being signed simply because they were women. I carry that moment with me today, knowing that I've always had to work twice as hard as the men to get what I want. But the way I figure, twice the work means twice the practice. And maybe that just makes me stronger in the end. You know, we've talked about that a few times on this show. Labels having this policy of one woman or maybe two, but not no one daring to have three women on their label still goes on today. I think, you know, just being able to tell that story, I, I hope that it breaks down some walls. And I, I think that we are beginning to see some, some really great change afoot. I think that the Americana Music Association has been much more inclusive, not just with gender, but with race. I think that, you know, it's, it's awkward to talk about these things and I would like to not talk about these things. I would like to not have to, mm. you know, share these experiences at all. But I think that, I think that it's, uh, it's just opening people's eyes. Not long after this ordeal with the, let's call him the absentee label president, you had a series of tests with Third Man Records, Jack White's label. What happened after those tests? Third Man accepted me for who I was. They liked the record the way that it was. And, and they gave me a shot. And I will never be able to repay them. I, it still feels like a dream. <laughs> um, everything just... It just completely exploded after that. And um, I'm just really thankful to Jack White and, and Ben Swank for believing in me and for just letting me follow my vision and seeing it all the way through. You know, you went from being a 19-year-old with a guitar and a dream to having a deal with a label that truly believed in your music. That sounds like the Nashville dream for a lot of aspiring musicians, particularly young ones. You know, so as you look and reflect on this city and how much it's changed in nearly 20 years, the 20 years you've been here, do you think the way you came up is still possible for musicians, young musicians in Music City today? Well, I would, I would love to think that it is. And I would love to think that people could come here and be themselves and, um, you know, follow their dream. But... I think that just the way that the world is changing, I think that um, indie artists have have a lot to go up against. I think um, these big tech companies, these streaming companies, and the way that we are devaluing the songwriter. Um, I mean, this is this is the place for songwriters to come and follow their dream, and I think that we're devaluing art, and that's just that's just the internet, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think that, that humans and that music fans are still hungry for real songs and for real stories. And so, of course, I would love to tell everyone to, to keep fighting and keep pushing and, um, 
keep on the the quest for making and creating and consuming uh, real art. Thanks for tuning in to this rebroadcast of our 2022 interview with Nashville musician Margot Price. When we come back, we'll hear a few songs from her newest album, Strays. So don't go away. This is Nashville. And this is Nashville. Grammy-nominated musician Margot Price is out with a new album called Strays. She wrote it with her husband and collaborator Jeremy Ivey in South Carolina, while the two of them were on a psychedelic mushroom trip. It's a bit of a departure from the old-school country feel of her debut album. And for one of the tracks, Radio, she collaborated with former Middle Tennessee resident Sharon Van Etten. Let's listen. I think I need to take some time now. And I want to turn my phone on. I just want to be alone. Just let me be alone today. I'm saving all my extra first interviewed Margot Price shortly after she released her memoir, Maybe We'll Make It, last fall. This hour, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of that episode. Margot, thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. 
So obviously, three, now four albums under your belt. You're familiar with writing a song, but, you know, I can only imagine that writing a book tapped on a different set of creative muscles, right? It's just you and that page. What was that process like for you? Well, it was a lot of fun, but I did nearly lose my mind, I think, hmm. in the editing process. And it consumed me. I had to put my songwriting on the on the back burner for a minute so I could really focus on this. And I... You know, it's it's different than having the melody there to kind of soften the blow of difficult words. When I began writing this book um, four and a half years ago, you know, I was pregnant, but I had not um, kind of made the decision to give up alcohol. And so as I was reading the book back and I was kind of processing a lot of things, um, I began to kind of see what I had been through in a different light, almost like seeing it as an outsider and just having a little bit of compassion for myself. Mm. Um, and I also, yeah, started therapy in the middle of writing this book because it just, it was opening a lot of wounds and I didn't quite know, um, how it was going to be received. Um, I was worried about being judged for talking so openly about, um, you know, things like substance abuse and uh, depression. And um, so the first draft of the book looked a lot different than what mm -hmm. what people are reading today. You mentioned, you know, showing care for yourself. Was, was this one of the first times you did that? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm my own worst critic. And um, I, I think that it's it's been hard for me um, to love myself. I think I've had a lot of um, a lot of self value, a lot of uh, like body dysmorphia, just just being not liking who I am, mm. and and feeling like maybe if I looked differently or something that I would be further in my career. Um, so I think, you know, it was just kind of reading it all back that just gave me a, a different a different view on it all. I think age age helps, too. Yeah. You know, your memoir is really open and unflinching. And you know, over the course of the book, you and your husband, musician Jeremy Ivey, you go through a lot. A lot of it's very painful. Was that hard to share or did you couple that along with, you know, what you, you just expressed about sharing stories about substance abuse to a very, here you have an endearing and adoring audience, but you also have a highly critical audience. And we were just talking about the internet. People in the comment sections can say what they want and they feel they have the right to do those things. Was it hard to open up about you and Jeremy? It was. He definitely encouraged me to be, like I said, transparent. I felt like when I wrote the first pass of the book, there just wasn't as much of the vulnerability in there because, you know, I was, I was worried about what people might say. Um, but he just, Jeremy just has a way of, of letting me know that everything's going to be okay. And we feel really strong in where our marriage is at now and the things that we went through after losing a child. I've, people can judge me for whatever they want, but I've 
was just doing the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just really proud of us that that we did make it through um, because we had we had a lot that we were up against. I mean, the divorce rate is pretty high anyway, but when you add losing a child on top of that and a failing career, um, it was really a recipe for disaster. I'm curious, what does this mean for you as an artist? You know, there's this narrative or this trope that the artist or the creative person has to be in torment. We have to be in pain in order to create. The idea that this pain and hardship brings out the best art in us, you know? Does it have struggle? Okay, I want it. I'm a hip-hop fan, and it's all over that, you know? What does that say to you? Like, how do you respond to that idea? Oh, this society does love our artists to be tortured, and I lived in that for a long time. I lived in that thought. I perpetuated my pain. I made it worse than it was. I turned down therapy for years and years because, A, there was a stigma around it in my hometown that if you got a therapist that you just had to be so lost and, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I perpetuated it with my abusive drinking. And um, I think everybody kind of has this, this like romantic thought that it's going to be, you're going to be like Hemingway. Mm -hmm. But what I have found... Um, I, I gave up alcohol almost two years ago and I feel like I'm in the most wonderful creative space. I feel like it's hard to make art when you're angry and you, you know, you can't be fully angry when you sit down to write a song. Of course you can process it later and I'd love to write a good mean song (laughs) (laughs) and channel your energy. But I think that it's just such a myth that we have to be tortured and, um, you know, I, I idolized a lot of people who were tortured. I I idolized a lot of their drug abuse and and thought that I had to do that and wore it like a badge of honor on my sleeve. Mm. But no one can last like that for that extended amount of time. And I hit my breaking point finally. And I'm glad that um, I've learned to take care of myself so I can maybe be around and make some more records and write some more books. How does that feel, being in the public view, yet fully embracing and in control of your well-being? I think it's incredibly empowering. And and just like I said, taking control of my own narrative, taking control of um, what I want to say, what I want to do, and and where I want to go, Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard to live in the public eye. And I had a lot of fear about even quitting drinking. I thought, oh, no one's going to, you know, think I'm cool anymore. They're going to think, oh, I didn't know she had such a problem. I didn't know, you know, but alcohol is one of the only uh, drugs that you have to explain yourself in this country for not taking. Mm. And Mm. I just, I I really want to reframe that. I feel like, like giving it up has been the most rebellious thing I've ever done. I really do feel um, like more people should um, try it. I, I never really intended to quit fully, but I have this incredible psychedelic experience that I have had to thank for it and for kind of reprogramming my brain. I also like went out and bought a bunch of books and and did a lot of reading. And it's just been like a... 
truly like a miracle. I had tried to give it up so many times, so many times. I thought I had control of it so many times. Mm. And and now I, I finally have just been able to eradicate it, not, not even think about it. I haven't like went to AA. I haven't done meetings or anything, but it's just been, it's been so freeing. Mm. So on that note, what's your advice to younger musicians, even older ones, who are artists, who are creative people, who are putting themselves through the crucible according to whatever tropes they think they have to live up to? The only person that you really have to live with is yourself. And so I think a lot of times we get caught up when we're writing music and when we're trying to create this image and this, you know, this alter ego, um, you get caught up in thinking, what do other people want to hear? What do other people want me to be? Um, with all my flaws, I am who I am. And I think once people start accepting that, start accepting themselves, um, we can just, we can just live with a lot less pain and it's, it's been incredible. It's, uh, it's a journey that, it, that anybody should take, I think. You know, you mentioned a little earlier that you like to write a good, mean song. Your One of your 2022 releases, um, Change of Heart, has some of those elements in it. Let's take a listen. One of these days, you're going to wake up older With a hole in your pocket and a blade on your shoulder that a lot it, you know change of heart you're just talking about how you made these great changes over the course of this show we've listened to songs from you know up to seven years ago till the present reflecting on this changes reflecting on your life when you think about that how has your understanding about life art and love how has that changed I have really learned to just to follow you know my heart to follow my muse wherever that takes me um you know this song i wrote this song with my husband jeremy and it's you know it's veering less in the the traditional country world mm -hmm. um and you know i think that we're still seeing as i've talked about you know women being treated as lesser it still is there. I mean, back in Loretta Lynn's day, it was 13.7% of the songs that you heard on the radio were women. Now it's just 13% on country radio. Mm. So I have veered away 
um, from that world because it's, it, it, you can only, I think that you can only go so far. They, they do not want, um, they do not want people in a lot of these organizations in the mainstream country world that are going to talk about, uh, you know, sexism, ageism, racism, uh, they just want people to sit and kind of look pretty and mm. and keep their opinions to themselves. So I'm I'm just following following where the song takes us. I'm just going where it feels good for me, and I just don't want to get stuck up, you know, stuck doing the same thing and uh, getting creatively in a rut. So yeah, mm. just trying to trying to do what feels natural. Following your own path rather than staying in your lane like that yes exactly <laughs> i really i really like that a whole bunch margo price thank you so much for being here today and sharing your story with us really appreciate it thank you i'm so grateful margo price is a nashville singer songwriter her latest album strays was just released this month Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhoe. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.